Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, April 27th, 2012. I'm going to have to take some time this weekend to clean up my computer desktop as well as my physical desktop. You can always tell when I'm, you know hot on the trail on a research project. Things go nuts on my computer desktop as well as my physical one. Hope this is no reflection on my brain. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We are asking you to come along with us as we listen, stop, think, compare, and then say, that's yes, amen and amen, or no, that doesn't pass muster. That's kind of the idea behind discernment is is you check to see if what's being taught by somebody, that would include me, is in accord with what God has revealed in his word. We do not want to contradict his word, you know, and that should not be happening in Christian churches. And according to God's word, sound doctrine matters. In other words, uh, sound doctrine is sound doctrine. Does that make sense? It seems like a redundancy. Yeah, but the the idea is this, is that, you know, Jesus hasn't called us to have, you know, okay doctrine. The biblical standard isn't um, mostly okay in the kind of right way kind of doctrine. Doctrine that has impact or a a message that makes a difference. Though that's not the standard. It's sound doctrine. It's doctrine that is the truth in accord with what God has revealed in his word. We are not to take doctrine lightly. When you take it lightly... Well, then you're actually uh, guilty of, well, you're, you're guilty of sin. You're disobeying what God has said. He wants you to be in his word and to understand him so that you can teach what's in accord with the truth. Rightly proclaim what God has done and tell the world the good news of the message of Jesus Christ and all that goes with that. And if you're, if sound doctrine isn't uh, on, you know, your agenda, then, um, well, then you're actually in, well, you're contradicting what God has said, and you're guilty of idolatry, because you're basically saying to God, listen, I'm going to come to you on my terms. 
I know that the Bible has all these things that it expects me to believe, but, you know, after all, this is the year 2012. I mean, we've got iPhones now and and Internet hotspots and 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 mocha lattes and, you know, and and volt electric cars. I mean, you can't expect in a day and age like this that I'm supposed to, you know, bring my mind into submission to what you've revealed about yourself. I mean. Everybody knows that, you know, with all the technology and where the world has advanced to that, you know, it's kind of, the Bible's kind of a pick and choose type of thing. As long as I'm spiritual but not religious and, you know, and and hold the Bible in high esteem, I'm sure that's good enough for God, right? No, that's rebellion. That's sin. That's idolatry. Our minds are to be transformed and renewed by God's word. And when you approach God's word as if you are God and not God, then what you basically are doing is giving the elbow to God or to shove here and a, you know, face palm there. And, you know, you're just moving him aside and say, you know, I'll take you on uh, my terms. You know, uh, Christianity is not the hometown buffet. It's not. Christianity has sound doctrine that is to be believed, taught, confessed, and those who contradict it are to be rebuked. They are to be put out of the church. They are to be called to repentance and chastised and run out of town if you can. I mean, because teach people who teach falsely divide the body of Christ. It is not those who are calling for sound doctrine that are dividing the body of Christ. It is always the heretics. It is never the person calling for sound doctrine. And when people divide, when you look at that over history, the division has always been, uh, you know, uh, regarding the truth. That's what, you know, you look at these things. And now sometimes people see things differently as to what the truth is, but division occurs when a false teacher draws away for himself, or in today's day and age, herself, disciples to her own or his own pet theology, their own doctrines, their own unique things, their own insights that nobody else has discovered. And they draw away disciples after themselves. That's it's The cancer in the church are those who are teaching falsely, not those who are standing up for the truth. So keep that in mind. I mean, just something to uh, consider there. Okay, we're, we're, we're kind of Coming into the end of a, a week of uh, fighting for the faith, a normal broadcasting week. Next week, I'm going to pick up uh, on Monday. I'm going to continue our series that we had started on Blackaby, and uh, I'll do that today. I've got some email that I want to get to, and uh, let's see here. I'm, what are we going to do? I, I've got a, a leadership. Uh, <laughs> we're going to do a leadership segment today. Somebody had suggested to me that um, uh, if if when I talk about leaders, I should use uh, the music from Peter Pan, Following the Leader. That's absolutely what we're going to do today. So we're going to unveil our new leadership uh, segment, um, Music, uh, which you know, comes to us via Disney. But we're going to be, we got a leadership update today. I've got um, a, kind of a strange one for you. And what I mean by that is that after yesterday's edition of Fighting for the Faith, where I had to literally do an apologetic to give a defense of the concept of individual salvation. You know, last night I was having a hard time sleeping. So 
I'm sitting, you know, which by the way is kind of normal for me. It's not like, you know, it, you know, it only occurs every now and then. In fact, it, um, it's rare that I have a good night's sleep. Um, just, I've had insomnia since I was like 18, 19 years old. It's just something that runs in my family and, you know, you just kind of learn how to deal with it. My son has it. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, last night being a normal night for me, I'm having a tough time sleeping. So, you know, I'm sitting in bed and I'm reading and I'm thinking and I'm thinking and reading and, and then it dawned on me, you know, you know, it's been a while since I had I, on the program. It's been a while since I've had to do an apologetic, a defense of the idea of God loves an individual or God saves an individual. So um, I went into the uh, Fighting for the Faith broadcast archives, and I found in my broadcast archives the last episode that I had that I had done where I addressed the concept of individual salvation, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know because the Bible tells me so. I mean, yeah, I'll, uh, uh, but anyway, so what we're going to do today is we're going to uh, hop into the uh, Fighting for the Faith uh, Back to the Future mobile, and uh, we're going to go back in time to the year 2009, in fact, July of 2009, and we're going to listen to me. <laughs> um, uh, the the me of 2009 discussing this issue this um topic and i think it's um well let's, let's just put it this way um the occasion is disturbing and the fact that you know almost 3 years later i'm having to make almost an identical apologetic a defense of the concept of individual salvation that jesus loves me or you uh, the, you know the concept of the individual o uh, over and above the concept of the of community. By the way, the biblical idea is you keep both in tension, and ultimately, though, the community is not the organic thing. Okay, when you when you make that the organic thing, then what happens is the individuals lose their right, and bad things happen. It's happened throughout history. You don't you. It's, you know, you, what happens is if you make the community the thing that's real, then individual human beings become an abstraction and they, well, bad things happen when that happens. But anyway, so what we're going to do, we're going to just do a little comparative work. I want you to hear uh, what I said in the past regarding individual salvation and the last time I had to address the topic. So we got a leadership segment. We got that. I got email. Um, and then in hour number two, we're going to end the week off with two good sermons. I got a Cy Van Manen. Uh, sermon and also a sermon, I think, from uh, Pastor Ron Hodel over at Faith Lutheran Church. Uh, both of them having to deal with the pericope, the uh, lectionary text, of, uh, the gospel reading for this past Sunday, that's talking about having peace with God. I think that would be a fantastic way to end off the uh, week. So, I, you know, I have no idea how long any of this is going to take today. But with that, let's dive into the program proper. Dun, 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 dun. I got two emails today, and one of them from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. By the way, I do want you all to know that uh, those of you who've been sending me emails um, correcting my pronunciation of um, Shock Derda, um, it, <laughs> yeah, um, appreciate the French lessons. Um, never studied French. Thanks for the help on that one. Anyway. Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley writes, he says, Dear Chris, I'm listening to Lawrence uh, Neeson's uh, first sermon in his Titanic series with some amusement. 
I'm glad that uh, <clears throat> you, you are enjoying it. He says, I, it, it may interest you to know that Captain Smith of the Titanic was, in fact, born in Hanley. I, I did not know that. So he's a local boy for uh, uh, Pastor Charmley there. And he was born in the year 1850, and his father was a potter, a man who made pots, in one of the town's many factories. Sadly, there is no evidence that his family ever attended the church at Hope Street, that is now Bethel, but there is no evidence that they did not either, so maybe they did. And uh, we even have a plaque on the house where he was probably born, though there is some confusion over where it was. But enough of the fact that uh, Captain Smith was from Hanley. My real point is that Mr. Neeson is using the James Cameron Titanic film as though as, as though it were an accurate portrayal of history. It's not. <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, you you mean you can't trust James Cameron? I you know I had no idea. I mean, <laughs> I think it's a, an important point here is that you don't do history from um, popular movies. Um, yeah, that's not how you do history. Um, it, the reason being is is that Hollywood, uh, well, they have a bad habit of taking license with particular historical details, omitting some, creating others, all to help carry a storyline. Now, now that being the case, I do think it's important for everybody to know this that th that uh, James Cameron correctly uh, I identified the fact that the Titanic hit an iceberg and that it sank. Okay. As for Rose and Jack, I don't think they really existed. But um, you know, just say, <laughs> just say it. Anyway, so <clears throat> uh, uh, Pastor Charlie continues. He says, um, uh, he, so we shouldn't be quoting uh, James Cameron as though it were an accurate portrayal of history. It's not my uh, most notably. Titanic was not a fast ship. She was in fact too large to be able to put on an impressive display of speed. Titanic's selling point was her size and luxury. The story that Titanic sank because J. Bruce Ismay, the owner of the White Star Line, bullied Captain Smith into going too fast is a myth, and it was manufactured entirely by the newspaper owner, William Randolph Hearst, who was engaged in a feud with Ismay. There is, in fact, no truth in the story, but it has been perpetuated by every film of the sinking. Now, I did not know that. Okay. Yet it has no historical basis at all and is merely a vicious character slur from the press based on the personal dislike of one millionaire for another. Wow. So rumors of Smith's forthcoming retirement seem to have been inaccurate. In fact, Titanic, he uh, after the Titanic, he would probably have gone on to captain another of her sister ships. The importance of Titanic is, in fact, an exercise in hindsight. She was the second of four ships, and it was her older sister, the Olympic, that was really news, the really newsworthy ship on her maiden voyage. There was no fanfare at Titanic's departure. She only really became news when she sank. So again, the scene with Ismay that Nescent played is utterly fictional. And in fact, Smith's friends called him Ted, not E.J., so one should always bear in mind that James Cameron's movie is fictional and act accordingly. Despite Cameron's boats, the film is highly inaccurate in its details, most notably in having smoke coming out of all four of Titanic's funnels. The fourth was a dummy used for storing deck chairs and incapable of making smoke. Cameron has an agenda in telling the story, 
and has altered some of the historical matter to fit his own narrative. So the whole point in this supposed sermon is based not on the historical Captain Ted Smith, but on a fiction started by a mean-spirited newspaper owner and perpetuated by filmmakers with a greater eye for drama than for historical accuracy. Yeah, great point. So <laughs> so apparently Lawrence Neeson has... <laughs> It's not just a fail, it's like an utter fail. It's an uber fail on his part because his sermon was not even based on real history of the Titanic, which was the subject of his sermon. Uh, it was based on a newspaper lie. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. Um, wow. Okay, so there you go. Just wanted to let you all know that, that uh, uh, Pastor <clears throat> Pastor Neeson didn't just fail, he utterly failed. Anyway, uh, David writes, and he writes from Des Moines, Iowa. He says, hello, Chris, I'm a new listener as, as of a few months ago, and I really enjoy your biblical discernment on things that are being said in Jesus' name out there in the public square. Thank you. I have a question, and I agree, agree with your criticism about Dave Barton. It is refreshing to hear someone take on some of the things he claims head on. I'm trying to understand your full criticism of Mr. Barton. David Barton says Jesus is against this and that tax based on this or that verse. And I can empathize with his desire to discern God's stance on the way that we govern today. Now, Chris, I hope that you're not saying that because the Bible does not specifically state that God is against estate tax or capital gains tax, that it does not address these issues because that same rationale is used to try to say that God doesn't say anything on abortion and many other modern day things where we have just changed the language we use for old time problems. To me, the issue of taxing is simple. If the government is taking money we have earned to give to other people that they say ha have earned it is stealing, plain and simple. We have the government. Uh, we have the government. We have because the church, me included, has allowed the government to step into what God has ordained as the church's role. And now we bow to the will of the state in order to keep our coveted tax exempt staff status. Sad story, really. Thanks for listening to my rant and putting together such an interest, entertaining program. Now, David, I want to point something out. You're asking me about my full stance regarding David Barton. Here's the idea: is that my problem isn't with David Barton's cause, okay? And the, the, oddly enough, in your email, you actually give the answer to your own questions. Let me let me explain it this way, okay? The Bible teaches you shall not steal. Okay, so I am absolutely convinced that when we vote in a government to do the dirty work and to become thieves, to basically hold a gun up to the head of, of a, of a law-abiding citizen and say, pay your taxes or, or else, because that's we all pay taxes at the end of a gun, ultimately. And then they turn around and they give that money to somebody who is not working. Okay, that and let's just say they could be working. Okay, you know that they it, that this is some kind of a collectivist idea. I think that's a form of theft, and I'm absolutely against it. I don't have a problem with a real safety net, with the idea that we you know there there are certain people. It's in our best interest as a nation to help. No problem with that. 
Okay, my problem comes with the idea of holding a gun to my head in the name of fairness. And they basically saying it's not fair that you make more money than this person over here. So we're going to punish you for being successful and we're going to steal from you. So the Bible does address that directly. And it's called thou shalt not steal. Now, same thing with abortion. Abortion is there. You can make a claim that it's 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 at least addressed indirectly several times in scripture regardless the point is this you shall not murder the scriptures teach so um taking the life of an unborn human being is murder so the bible prohibits it so you, you the idea is is that we do know this my problem then with david barton is this is that even though i m- more often than not agree with him politically I disagree with the tactics that he's employing in the defense of the um, of the cause that he is defending. So the idea is this. I mean, it would not be okay for me, you know, if I were to go out and, you know, say do street preaching or street evangelism. It would not be okay for me to, in the course of time while out there street preaching, make up stories or, you know, in, you know embellish things and not tell the truth, okay? If we're going to, you know, character says that you shall not lie. That's, you know, that's the idea here. So the other commandment that comes into play here is the commandment that says, thou shalt not bear false witness. The problem here with David Barton is regardless of the noble cause that he is a part of, he is bearing false witness by taking passages out of Scripture and making him say things that they do not say. Ultimately, that hurts Jesus Christ, his reputation, the reputation of the church, his own reputation, and the reputation of the cause that he is um, is uh, out there defending and upholding. So what David Barton needs to do is clean up his act. If he's going to cite a biblical passage and say that this passage prohibits this or affirms that or whatever, then the passage needs to say it, Okay. Um, so the idea is this, I can't go around telling people, Hey, you know, that pirates are mentioned in the Bible. It's absolutely true. You have, you ever heard of the, uh, the, the, the parable of the buried treasure? See, there's pirates mentioned in the Bible. Now, even though I run pirate Christian radio, um, that would be, well, it would be blasphemous. I would be bearing false witness against God himself by making such a claim. So nobody has the right who calls themselves a Christian to twist God's word and to make it say things that it doesn't. That is forbidden by the commandments about blaspheming God's name as well as bearing false witness. And David Barton is guilty of doing of breaking both commandments when he does that. So the idea here is this. If we're going to be in the public square taking, you know, basically out there saying that we believe that the representative republic established by the founding fathers of the United States is worth conserving, that the principles that they base this nation on are in fact true and should be the ongoing basis by which we are governed in the United States, and that there's certain distortions that have come into the American system that are contrary to those principles, then we need to put out a solid, defensible easily understandable uh, apologetic for those things and if we're going to bring God's word to bear in those in those discussions not just natural law then God's word had better back it up clearly 
Otherwise, you're lying. You're cheating. It's 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 dishonesty. It's not it's not tolerated in schools. It's not tolerated in colleges, and it should not be allowed in the public square. David Bart needs to clean up his act. But anyway, David, thank you for the uh, the question and the opportunity to answer it. And uh, I hope you continue listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's uh, it's an acquired taste. So anyway. All right, looking at the time here. Okay, we're going to take our first break, and uh, when we come back, we got uh, two bits of business. I got a leadership update. Oh, man. Um, I found a um, on the Leadership Network site, they have these videos, um, like the 30-second leader, the 30-second leadership. And so we're going to be uh, looking at a series of 30-second leadership videos or the answers to a particular question, which I found to be kind of, well... A strange question to be asking. I'll save it for after the break. So um, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Morning, sir. Can I help you? Yes. Do you have a copy of 30 Days in the Desert to Learn Your Purpose and to Cast the Vision to the Ignorant Masses by S. Furtick QWZ? Uh, well, I don't know the book, sir. Uh, never mind. Never mind. How about 101 Ways to Build a Mega Church and Make Big Bucks? I? Well, some American gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment. I believe his last name rhymes with Shin. Uh, no. Well, we haven't gotten in stock, sir. <sighs> oh, well. Not to worry. Not to worry. Can you help me with the screw tape letters? Ah, yes. C.S. Lewis. No. I beg your pardon? No, Harold Wapcat. I think you'll find C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters. No, no, Lewis wrote the screw tape letters with one C. This is the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. The screw tape letters with two C's. Yes, I should have said that. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Hmm, funny, you've got a lot of books here. Yes, we do, but we don't have the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. Hmm, pity, it's more thorough than Lewis's. More thorough? Yes, I, I wonder if it might be worth looking through all of your screw tape letterses. No, sir, all of our screw tape letterses have one C. Are you sh- quite sure? Quite. Hmm. Not worth just looking? Definitely not. <sighs> all right, how about the great divorce? Yes, well, we have that. That's G-R-A-T-E, divorce, but also by Harold Wapcat. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Harold Wapcat. He actually, he's not very popular. Not the problem of pain. That's P-R-O-L- P-R-O-A-B-L-U-M. No. The Chronicles of Narnia with a K. No. How about Out of the Violent Planet? Definitely not. Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh! Yes. I wonder if you might have a copy of Perilous Landra. No, as I said before, we're right out of Harold Wapcat. No, not Harold Wapcat. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes. 
You mean Paralandra? No, Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis. That's Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. No, well, we don't have Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. And perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Dandy Landra by C.S. Lewis or the penultimate battle by Clive Staples' Chewbacca, or even Out of the Silent but Deadly Planet by B.S. Lewis with four eyes and a silent Q. What a pity. That's my favorite. Why don't you try Zondervan? I, I did. They sent me here. Did they? I, I wonder. Oh, do go on, please. Yes, I, I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Pastor Perry Noble and his intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant purpose-driven pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No. Don't have that funny. Got a lot of books here. Well, I mustn't keep you standing here. Thank you. Oh, well, do you have... No, no, we haven't. No, we haven't. But, 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 Sorry, but, but, it's one o'clock. We're closing for lunch. I, I saw it. I saw it. What? What? I, I saw it over there. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Yes. B-O-D-I-E-S. Yes. M-A-Y-E-R. Yes. Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgated version. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated the version. The expurgated version of Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Mayer? The one without the Lutherans. The, the one without the Lutherans? They've all got the Lutherans. It's a standard religious body. The Lutherans are in all the books. Well, I don't like them. They baptize infants. All right, I'll remove it. Any other religious bodies you don't like? I don't like the Presbyterians. Uh, the Presbyterians, right. Presbyterians. There you are. Any others you don't like? Any others? The Methodists. The Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists. Ah, oh, here they are. There you are. No Lutherans, no Presbyterians, no Methodists. There's your book. I can't buy that. It's torn. <laughs> I-, I wonder if you have... Um... No, go on. Ask me anything. We've got lots of book here. You know, it's a bookshop. How about Osteen brushes his teeth? No, no, we don't have that one. Funny. Uh, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. No, no, no. Try me again. Uh, I know. Uh, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. No, no, no. What, what, what? what? Yeah, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. Martin Chemnitz is two... Yes! We got it! I see it somewhere! Yes! I found it! It's here! Got it! Yes! Here we are! Martin Chemnitz's Two Natures in Christ! There's your book! Now buy it! I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit! I, I don't have any money! I'll take a check! I, I don't have a checkbook! I got a blank one! I, I don't have a bank account! Right! I'll buy it for you! There we are! There's change! There's some money for a taxi on the wait, way home! There's wait! Your book. Wait! Wait! What? 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 I can't read! You can't! Read. Right? Sit down. Sit down. Sit, sit. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Chapter 1. Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, united into one hypostasis, there follows from this a communion of attributes. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. I I just need to warn you about that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us because uh, the more people that join our crew, what it does is it helps level out our giving on a month-to-month basis so that we can uh, better, well, let's say, make uh, informed financial decisions based upon what we know we we have. (laughs) That's probably the best way to put it. Um, so, you know, plus, you know, as the station continues to grow, so do our financial needs. So um, if you don't already support Fighting for the Faith, uh, please consider doing so. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, do that by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. That's following the leader from the movie uh, Peter Pan from 1953, Disney version. So, uh, all right. So, uh, as I said uh, at the before we went to the break, been you found a resource at the Leadership Network website. Leadership Network, in case you are not familiar with them, is an organization um, that was officially started by a disciple of Peter Drucker. A gentleman by the name of Bob Buford. Bob Buford, um, upon the death of Peter Drucker, you know, what, five, six, seven years ago, uh, said of uh, P- uh, of Peter Drucker regarding his involvement at leadership organiz- at leadership network that uh, Drucker was the head, he was the brains of the outfit, and that uh, Bob Buford was just the legs. And it's also important to note in my interview with uh, Doug Paget regarding you know where did the emerging emergent church come from. That was uh, a project spearheaded by the folks over there at Leadership Network. Um, and, uh, well, 
Doug Padgett worked directly with uh, Peter Drucker during his uh, stint there in at Leadership Network. So anyway, Leadership Network has a series of videos that they've posted on Vimeo called 30 second 30 second leadership you know so i mean if you want to learn leadership in 30 second bites at a time apparently you can do that at the uh, leadership network website the problem is is that after listening to some of these uh, 30 second leadership videos i'm beginning to wonder if these guys are actually qualified to teach anybody leadership because the questions that they're asking are you know kind of interesting but on top of it um the people who are giving the answers uh, don't seem to be of one accord. It's as if they're kind of just making stuff up as they go along. Here, here So <clears throat> just so you know, the question that's on the table that each of these guys is going to be answering is the question. <clears throat> sorry, I apologize for the question in advance. The question is, does size matter? And it's talking about church size, just so you know. I know some of you were went the wrong way with that, but you, you, I think the question was asked on purpose to kind of give the double entendre, which makes me go, why would a church leadership organization do that? But anyway, so the question is, does size matter? Here's our first answer to the question. Uh, does size really matter when it comes to your church? That's a very awkward question. Yeah, tell me about it. By the way, this is Dave Ferguson, who's the lead pastor of Community Christian Church. So he's being asked the question by the folks over there at Leadership Network. But once you get past that, um, no, it doesn't matter. What matters is impact, and the impact that you can make is all about what really matters. All right, so first answer to the question is no. What matters is impact. Okay, well, let's take a look at uh, Eric Metcalf's answer to this uh, particular thorny question and uh, see what he says. By the way, he's uh, the director of an organization called New Thing. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, apparently he's some kind of a church uh, growth consultant uh, who works in conjunction with Leadership Network. Here's his answer. Size doesn't really matter. The biggest thing to remember is leader readiness. And so as we look at small groups or we look at multiplying campuses or multiplying churches or multiplying networks, like really the biggest thing is has somebody gone through the apprenticeship process? Are they ready? To lead because leader readiness for us is like the critical factor it is the thing we look for versus looking how big a small group is or how big a church is we'll multiply that based upon leader readiness not the size of that church you got it so that okay so um no and no so the uh dave ferguson says the most important thing is impact this guy says it's Leader readiness. So, I mean, you know, that's the most important. Leader readiness. Do you have leader readiness and are you making an impact? Here's Matt Carter. Um, um, he's going to answer this question. And uh, Matt is the pastor of, Aust of Austin Stone Community Church. Let's see what he says. All right, so the question is, does size of your church really matter? And the answer is yes and no. Yes in the sense that there's... So now it's yes and no. And the other two answers were no and no. And one guy said impact. The other guy said leader readiness. What's your opinion? Certain things you can do when you're a larger church that, um, that you can't when you're a smaller church. Yeah. So just the volume of, of ministry and right, dollars yeah. and things like volume that. Volume and that dollars. Access yeah. to and, and resources. Yeah. But as far as uh, having an impact for Christ, the answer is it doesn't matter at all. Whether so this guy's another impact guy. Okay. You have five people, two people, or 10,000. Um, you can go to the Bible, use those principles and impact. By the way, that was not me buzzing him. That he went over his time there. Yeah. A little for Jesus. 
So yes and no, 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 um, and impact, leader readiness, impact. So two for impact, one for leader ready, two no's, one yes, no. Okay, um, let's check another leadership network guy. Um, okay, uh, this is Neil Cole, uh, the author of Organic Church. Let's see what he says re- regarding this thorny leadership question here. You know, see if we can make sense of this and come to a biblical answer to this thorny question. People think because I do church in homes and places of business and college campuses that I would say size doesn't matter, but I think size does matter. Okay, so that's two no's, one yes, no, and one yes. I think you need to start small and grow large. If you start large and try to go small, you lose all reproduction. All right, so don't start big and go small because then you lose reproduction. That apparently could be bad towards impact, too, especially if you don't have ready leaders. So I think all true multiplication begins slow and small and builds to large and fast. But you got to start small. All right. So there you go. Our first leadership segment here at Fighting for the Faith. And um, I mean, did that answer the question for you? I mean, do you feel like, wow, you know, with four 30 second segments that you really have firmly now can be a better leader in the church. Um, yeah, there's <laughs> kind of a problem there. Um, kind of a big problem. Yeah, all right. Um, I'll just kind of leave it at that. That was un- unhelpful. That just like at the best. And you know, where was the Bible in any of this? And by the way, just you know, by way of uh, kind of caveat here. Um, you know you know who uh, talks about the importance of being a leader rather than a minister that would be Rick Warren uh back on March 19th of this year he uh, he uh, at his pastors.com website put together a uh, leadership um communique yeah not not sure exactly what to call it but the name of it is break through these three barriers to growth and in this article this is a direct quote from Rick Warren to pastors, <clears throat> you must change the primary role of the pastor from minister to leader. Okay, let me translate that into German for you. You must change the primary role of the pastor from minister to Fuhrer. What's the difference? In leadership, you take the initiative. In ministry, you respond to the needs of others. <laughs> Yeah, we don't want any pastors responding to the needs of others now, do we? So when someone calls and you pick up the phone, that's ministry. When you pick up the phone and call someone, that's leadership. So, yeah, so what we need is a bunch of guys who call themselves pastors who don't pick up the phone, you know, and are are the ones making the phone calls. And so uh, Rick Warren is literally publicly advocating that we need to get rid of ministers and instead have furors. Thought that would be rather interesting to pass along. You can look it up at the pastors.com website if you'd like to read the rest of it. Moving along. When you hear the air attack warning, you and your family must take cover.
Yeah, that means we're doing a, well, a Mark Driscoll update. This is kind of a piggyback off of yesterday's uh, edition of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, let me remind you what it is that I took issue with. The name of the video is Jesus Loves Us, This We Know. And, um, well, Driscoll, uh, as far as I'm concerned, he made a grievous error. We are called, uh, we're to hold I, the I and the we stuff in tension. It's absolutely imperative that somebody confess that Christ died for them individually. And when we come together as a church, we corporately confess that Christ died for us. And when we pray the, you know, the Lord's Prayer, we pray, our Father, not my Father, who art in heaven. So the idea is, is that both are in Scripture, and you never pit the two against each other. And don't even try to tease it out as to how this kind of stuff works, because God doesn't say. But, well, the, here's the issue is that Mark Driscoll, from things he's said publicly over the years and even recently, it's very clear that he's got an anti-Cartesian bent to him. Look it up if you're not sure what I'm talking about. I'm talking about uh, uh, foundationalism, uh, modernism, and the Cartesian understanding of I think, therefore I am. Driscoll has publicly um, taken swipes at this concept, and I think that may be what's ticking here. But again, here's what he said in this Jesus Loves Us, This We Know video. Hang on. And we even teach our kids falsely, Jesus loves who? Me, this I know. We should sing Jesus loves us, this we know. Yeah, so we're teaching our kids falsely when we teach them uh, Jesus loves me, this I know. No, we're not actually teaching them falsely. That's actually backed up in Scripture. So as I was saying uh, at the opening of the program, um, during last night's um, regular episode of Insomnia, which I seem to just have been enjoying for most of my adult life, you know, I, I went back in, in my mind and I thought, you know what, I remember covering this topic, the, 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 the topic of individual salvation versus corporate salvation. I really do remember covering the topic. And so I got onto my computer, onto my laptop and you know went on to the fighting for the faith website and sure enough i've addressed this topic but i haven't addressed it in almost three years now it's not quite three years so you know it's you know it's what two years ten months something like that but i think it's important for us to well make use of the uh, pirate christian radio time machine and our flux capacitor and go back in time and listen to what i said and who i said it against that's kind of the more important uh, point because, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, back in time I had to make an apologetic basically defending the concept of individual salvation. It's a whole other thing when you consider who I had to make it against. And it's weird now that, well, Mark Driscoll is sharing company with this person. It, yeah, let, hang on a second here. Um, let me... Uh, Rev up the uh, Pirate Christian Radio Flux capacitor here. Here we go. All right. Now, you Doctor Who fans out there, I apologize. I, You know, I'm an 80s guy. So, okay, let's see. We are going to be setting our time circuits for, let's see here, the year 2009. And the date is uh, the 7th. 
of July. Here we go. Uh, no, I'm sorry, July 9th. There we go. Oh, I would have gone to the wrong date. So, okay, so we got July 9th, 2009. Okay, the time circuits. There we go. We've got them locked in here. Uh, fasten your seatbelts, please. We're going to take the uh, Pirate Christian Radio time machine up to 88 miles an hour. Hold on. Here we go. Uh-oh. I think I forgot to put plutonium in. Uh-oh. All right. <clears throat> there we go. Let's try this again. Love doing that. Oh, man, I'm out of plutonium again. I'll have to take care of that later. Anyway, so here we are in the year 2009, July of 2009. It's a little warmer than it is today. Um, but uh, the um, the episode of Fighting for the Faith is entitled Bishop Catherine Jefford Shorey Claims That Individual Salvation is a Heresy. Yeah, that's the name of the um, the program. So what I'm going to do right now, you know, basically from now until I tell you I'm back, even though it's going to sound like me because it is me. But remember, it's the the, the me of 2009 speaking, not the me of two of 2012. So from now until I say, okay, we're back to 2012. Okay, um, you're going to be listening to something that I said in 2009 against Catherine Jefford Shorey. The apostate female archbishop of uh, of the Episcopalian Church, and um, this is from you know their general conference that was held in two thousand and nine in uh, Anaheim. At, uh, I think it was one of the, the Disney hotels. But in there, she basically claimed that the the great Western heresy is uh, individual salvation. And so here's the deal: my point, kind of up front, is don't you find it odd that now Mark Driscoll is in the same camp in some weird way with Catherine Jefford Shorey. The point that he was making is similar to the point that she was making. And so I've only had to make this apologetic twice on Fighting for the Faith. And the first was against Catherine Jefford Shorey, and the second was against Mark Driscoll. I find that problematic. But So here we go. I'm going to say now, and when I say, when I say that, then we are listening to the me of 2009. It'll, I don't know how long the segment's going to be, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes, who knows. Uh, but the point is, is that I want you to hear what I said back then because it applies today to Mark Driscoll. And I'll, I'll come back as soon as I'm done. So here's the me of 2009. So now. There we go. Headline for the Christian Post story reads, U.S. Episcopal head, that would be uh, Bishop Catherine Jefford Shorey, heads, head opens triennial convention with crisis talk. And let me read, this is by Eric Young of the Christian Post. He, uh, he writes, in her first opening address to the general convention of the Episcopal Church, the most reverend Catherine, hang on a second here, <coughs> I'm hacking up a hairball, <coughs> By the way, Jesus had zero uh, female apostles. Um, the most reverend Catherine Jefford Shorey made it very clear that the denomination she presides over is in the middle of a crisis, one that has several parts. Now, what's the crisis there in the Episcopal Church? Well, about 700 congregations 
uh, have left the Episcopal Church and um, started their own Anglican, you know, thing going on here in America. And uh, why did they leave? Because, well, she's not preaching the Orthodox Christian faith. She's teaching a different gospel. We'll prove that here shortly. Um, Let me read just a little bit more of this to kind of give you a highlight of what to listen for. Quote, this is Catherine Jefferts Shorey speaking, the overarching connection in all these uh, crises has to do with the great Western heresy, uh, that we can be saved as individuals and that any of us alone can be in right relationship with God. That's what you have to look forward to. Yes, that's right. Catherine, Catherine Jefferts Shorey, you're going to hear her say it in her own words because it's oh so much more powerful when you hear her say it, that the overarching connection in all of these crises has to do with the great Western heresy. Yeah, there's a big heresy here in the West. And what is that heresy? Uh, that we can be saved as individuals, uh, that any of us alone can be in, rel- in right relationship with God. Yeah, individual salvation, according to Catherine Jefford Shorey, is a heresy. That's what you have to look forward to. So really, I, um, if you have one of those things that you put in your mouth to protect your teeth while grinding, you know, at, there's people who have problems that, you know, at night they grind their teeth. And so they have these uh, things they put in their mouth to protect themselves so that they, you know, they don't end up grinding their teeth at night. If you have one of those, you might want to put one in because uh, you will be grinding your teeth when you hear what she says. If not, um, you, you go borrow one from a neighbor. You know, just stick it in a thing of Listerine. It'll clean it right up. Don't worry about the germs. Here's Catherine Jefford Shorey. This crisis is an opportunity to refocus on what is most essential. When we've done that, we will go on our way rejoicing. The decision-making we face here is an opportunity to choose the direction of our journey into God's mission. Will we turn our faces toward Jerusalem, or will we wander back out into the desert? Uh, pause there for a second here. She's talking about the overarching crisis, and notice the light, light, nice biblical illustration there. Will we turn our faces towards Jerusalem? Um, as if she's Jesus Christ, or the um, Episcopal Church is Jesus. What will they turn their face? What does that mean? I understand what it means when Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. That means he was ready to go there and die for the sins of the world, be punished in our place on the cross, you know, propitiate God's wrath, atone for our sins. So when it says talks about Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem, that's what it's referring to, him going to his death and his resurrection. Okay, we continue. How we will engage God's reconciling mission in sharing the good news, healing the world. Healing the world? Huh? Wait a second. Backing it up here, this is weird. How we will engage God's reconciling mission. God's rec- How will we engage God's reconciling mission? You know who this sounds like? She sounds just like Rob Bell and Brian McLaren. God's reconciling mission. How will we engage God's reconciling? Well, this is real simple. We go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Announcing that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, you know, when he was being crucified on the cross. She'll get to that, by the way. By the, This is probably going to take a long time. I apologize. I have to interrupt. 
how we will engage God's reconciling mission in sharing the good news, healing the world, and caring for all of God's creation. What does it mean that we're going to heal the world? Sounds like one of those Michael Jackson things. How will we discover anew that we are in relationship with all that God has created and that we are meant to be stewards of the whole? Lane Collectivist talk here, by the way. Denson reminded us recently that stewards are wardens of the stocks, keepers of the pig pens. We're beginning to notice that our global garden increasingly resembles an odorous stock. But it's not the pigs who are the problem. Pigs are neat and tidy if they have enough space. The problem is with their keepers, who see pigs only as bacon and ham-producing machines, rather than part of God's good creation and therefore deserving of appropriate respect. Um, what is the appropriate respect that we're supposed to show for a pig? I'm, I'm kind of at a loss to figure out what that is. Again, and I do read my Bible regularly. The appropriate respect for a pig. Hmm. The crisis of this moment has several parts. And like Episcopalians, particularly the ones in Mississippi, they're all related. The overarching connection in all of these crises has to do with the great Western heresy. All right, here it is. <clears throat> the overarching... How did she put it here? The overarching connection in all of these crises has to do with the great western heresy this is Catherine jefford shorey now bishop of the episcopal church usa claiming that there's a great western heresy what is that heresy here we go that we can be saved as individuals the great western heresy is that we can be saved as individuals we continue that any of us alone can be in right relationship with God. That any of us alone can be in right relationship with God. You know, I'm going to stop there for a second. And the reason I'm going to interrupt her, at least a little bit of her context, is I want to deal with that, it, it, it basically, the th that, those thoughts by themselves, because she gives what I consider to be a non-secator uh, example of this. Although it's not exactly that, but... Um, she, well, I'll, let me play her comment here. Okay, now notice, it's one thing to say that the church needs to prophetically speak against the sinfulness that's inherently involved in rugged individualism and not understanding that uh, we are all connected and that your actions affect other people, okay? Uh, in Christianity, we confess in one of our creeds the communion of the saints, Okay, it is true that there is Christian community and that community literally centers in on obsesses with the apostolic preaching. It obsesses on and focuses in on 
the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Okay, so there is truly a communion of the saints. It's not a communion with the world, but a communion with the saints, a communion of the saints. Who are the saints? They are the ones who have been raised from the dead, given faith. I mean, spiritually, raised from the dead spiritually, given faith. Their heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. They trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Those are who the saints are. It's not just a community of communities or a community with the world. We are the world. We are the children. None of that. No. We are, Christians believe in the communion of the saints. So it's one thing to preach against the excesses and sinfulness of rugged individualism. But that's not what she said. Let me back it up again and let you hear what the great Western heresy is again. That we can be saved as individuals. That we can be saved as individuals. That any of us alone can be in right relationship with God. So there it is. That we can be saved as individuals or any of us alone can be in right relationship with God. That, my friends, is her claim is the great heresy. And by making that claim, actually, she is the one who has become the great heretic. Okay? Catherine Jeffert Shorey is no longer, if she ever was, um, uh, basic, she is no longer an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ. She has become an agent of the devil. I know that's strong language. I understand that. This woman is not is not an agent or representative of the Jesus Christ of scriptures. She is she has become an agent of Satan and the devil. That means the Episcopal Church USA literally is under the direction and control of a woman who is an agent of the devil. I know that's strong. But that woman is not only wrong, she is actually now hostile against Orthodox Christianity. Let me prove this to you. We are all very familiar with John chapter 3, verse 16. Well, there's a little bit more to the verse itself, but let me let me read a couple of these verses, and then we're going to apply a portion of the historical grammatical method. Keep in mind, the Holy Spirit inspired the words themselves, okay? Not just the concepts. He inspired the very words that were written to be written. And these are red letters, by the way, for those of you liberals listening. We read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now remember, Catherine Jefford Shorey says that the great Western heresy, the great uh, Western heresy, is that we can be saved as individuals that any of us alone can be in right relationship with God. Okay, now let's just do a little bit of grammar. Let me let me read a little bit more. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, I'm going to focus in on the whoever 
of uh, verse 16 and the whoever of verse 18. Now, this is important stuff. Historical, grammatical. This is real simple. Christ, God, the Holy Spirit inspired these very words to be written for us. Okay. Now, she says we it's a heresy to believe that we can be saved as individuals or that any individual can be in right relationship with God. Now, either what she's saying is true or it's false. If what she's saying is true, uh, then we will not find things like I'm going to point out here. Okay. All right. A little bit of Greek work here. I apologize for those of you who do not know Greek. It's okay. I will be nice to you. Okay. The whosoever, okay, that we get to in uh, verse 16 it's basically it's a it's a verb that's uh, that's uh, the participial form, if you would, in the Greek. Now, in the Greek, the verb is pistuo, okay, basically meaning to believe or to trust, okay. And uh, when it takes on a participial form, okay, it takes on some attributes of a, of basically of a noun, if you would. So it's kind of like a verbal noun. Maybe that's that, that I'm I'm trying to simplify this here. So it's got parts of it that are that you would expect to see as as the verb, and parts of it that also make it similar to a noun. Okay. Now, that being the case, uh, the participle here of pistuo, the Greek uh, pistuo pistuoon is what it says in the Greek, and it's the present active participle. Masculine singular nominative. Masculine singular nominative. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, singular, whoever believes, the singular believing one in him should not perish but have eternal life. In case you missed it and disagree with it, that exact same participial form is again shows up in John chapter 3, verse 18. Whoever the believing one is in him, again, masculine, singular, nominative, present, active, participle. Salvation, literally according to Scripture, according to Jesus Christ, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, is an individual thing. Okay? Let me give you another passage in case you're not convinced. And I understand, you know, working with the Greek. Um, Paul, speaking of himself, not of a community of believers, but speaking of himself, he says, he writing to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, says, look out for those dogs, look out for those evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Talking to the believers, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I 
may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Notice all the I talk there. Okay, we're back. You know, we're back to the year 2012. Weird, though, don't you think? Um, that's some pretty illustrious company that um, Mark Driscoll's keeping there. Um, you know, here at Fighting for the Faith, there's only been two people whom I've had to do an apologetic for the concept of individual salvation uh, against, so to speak. The first, Catherine Jefford Shorey, and the second, Mark Driscoll. Something's wrong. Something's wrong when a Christian pastor is wrongly dividing the Word of God and saying it's false to teach our kids, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, because indeed the Bible does tell me so. All right, we are up on our second break, and uh, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Got two good sermons to end off the week. You're not going to want to miss them. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. We're going to play two good sermons for you today, both on the topic of peace with God. This is really 
central stuff to the gospel. And I think it's a good way to end our broadcast week on a good note with the gospel ringing in your ears as you go into the weekend. All right, let's do this. ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermons come to us one via river bend lutheran church up there in canada cy van manen presiding second one will be from pastor ron hodel from faith lutheran church in capistrano beach california both of them are addressing the topic of peace with god Gospel text is uh, post-resurrection, Luke 24, 36 through 49. You're going to hear the gospel today. I'm just excited thinking about it. Anyway, so let's do this. Let's uh, let's just kill the music and let's get right to it. Cy Van Manen's is short. Pastor Hodel's is uh, twice as long. <laughs> And length of time doesn't matter. They both get to the gospel and they preach it beautifully. So we'll start off our two good sermons today. Here is uh, Pastor Cy Van Manen in his sermon, Peace with God. Grace and mercy and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for today is from Luke chapter 24, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Weebo Ludwig, a relatively infamous man here in Alberta, just died. He was accused of being involved in eco-terrorism and served time in the Canadian penal system for such charges. He was the leader of a Christian community named Trickle Creek, just outside of Hive, Alberta. He died April 9th this year from esophageal cancer. I watched the news as the last reporter who interviewed him was told by Mr. Ludwig, Mr. Ludwig said, I am dying, but I have made peace with my God. This is not the first time that I've heard this statement. When I was in the field with the 10th Field Regiment, Royal Canadian Artillery, out of Regina, I was standing with the troops, and one master warrant officer was telling the troops of his antics throughout his career in the military. The drinking, the brawling, the carousing, and with all the others, I laughed at the appropriate times and was somber. At the right times. At the end of all of that, he looked a little sad, and then he looked at me and said, Padre, I have no regrets. I have made peace with God. Who here has heard someone make a statement like that? That they have made, someone has made peace with God. Whenever I've heard that, I've wondered, well, how does one do that? What am I missing? I have not made peace with my God, at least not to my knowledge. What would that look like? How would I accomplish that? If Mr. Ludwig and the Master Warrant Officer made peace with God, they must know something that I don't know, because they both lived lives that I would suspect are less than wholesome even by the world's standards, let alone God's standards, which they fall horribly short of. 
Wait, but don't we all fall short of God's ways and laws? As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, no, not even one. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. If I were, if we were to make peace with God, it would be something we would do. And the scriptures are true in saying that we are not able to make peace with God. In fact, God's wrath should burn against us for our sin. In and of ourselves, we are a people of sin and death, not peace. We are a warring, grumbling, whining, complaining people. A people that like to break things like promises and relationships. How could we as sinners possibly make a move toward making peace, some kind of peace with God, when we cannot make peace amongst ourselves? I suppose when some people say it, that they have made peace with their God. They are hoping that they are good enough or have lived lives worthy enough to give them the chance to darken the doors of the pearly gates on the day of their death. Of course, we cannot, no one can make peace with God. Our good works are not enough to get us close to making peace with God, and as Paul told us, we fall terribly short. We should be as terrified as the disciples were when Christ had left them in death and they hid for fear of the outside world. The disciples had no peace. Their God had seemingly fled, the Jews were out for blood, and their band of believers no longer knew what to believe. Then the most amazing thing happens to the disciples. God in the flesh stands among them. And when he does this, he does not say to them, I am arisen. He does not say, see, all that I told you that was going to happen has happened. He does not say, now that you see me, you can believe. Jesus, our risen Lord and Savior, says, peace to you. He does not say, make peace with me. He gives his peace to them. Jesus is concerned with his disciples, so he says, peace to you. The disciples have the only reaction one can have when it seems God has left you to your own devices. Before Jesus stands among them, they are afraid. They have fear. The world does not know Jesus, and so it lives in fear. And the disciples thought they knew Jesus. But in their fear, they forget who he was and all he taught. So Jesus stands among them and gives them his peace by being present and reminding them that the Christ had to suffer and rose again from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Dear friends, if that last statement that Jesus said to the disciples sounds familiar, it is because it is the reason we come to church. Not because it's exciting or fun or makes us happy or glad, but because here God offers his peace which passes all understanding to guard your hearts and minds in and through Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. What the disciples saw with their eyes of flesh, you see through eyes of faith by the gift of the Holy Spirit. What kind of love has the Father bestowed upon us? The kind of love that adopts us as his own dear children, so that we might know of his presence in our lives for all time, to the end of time. 
In baptism, you are put into Christ. As Paul tells us, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You are in Christ. And he gives you his very body and blood so that you may take Christ into you. You get to receive Christ into your mouth and stomach so that you might have the forgiveness of sins and the peace that goes along with that. You see, we don't make peace with God, but we don't have to. For God has made peace with us by taking on flesh and dying on the cross so that we might live and never die. As the disciples found out, and as we know well, lack of fear does not consist in the absence of danger, but in the presence of God. And peace that Jesus gives is not the absence of trouble, but rather the confidence that he is with you always, even to the very end of the age. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Jesus gives peace that is different than the world gives. Because though the world may fall apart around you, your salvation is secure in him who died and rose again. Peace is sins forgiven and salvation secure. Yours is. Amen. And now let us pray. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds and in through Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Uh-huh. Nice. Nicely done. You don't need a lot of minutes to, to make it punch, do you? Okay, second sermon. This is Pastor Ron Hodel and his sermon entitled, Peace to You. Here we go. In the name of Jesus, amen. Again this morning, we hear Easter echoing throughout our gospel lesson. Two weeks out from Easter... And the events of our gospel lesson are still those things that happened on that first Easter evening. The disciples are afraid. They're afraid that Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. Actually, that's not even in their realm of thought right now. They're sure that he's still in the grave. Certain of it. In spite of the fact that they've been hearing tales to the contrary. They're afraid that they've wasted the last three years of their lives. They're afraid that they got it all wrong. Paraphrasing the words of our last hymn last Sunday, a somewhat difficult tune, but incredible words we sang about Thomas, that the vision of his skeptic mind was keen enough to make him blind to any unexpected act too large for his small world of fact. And so they were full of questions. Like a professional athlete put out a commission by a career-ending injury, the disciples were wondering, now what? What do we do with the rest of our lives? Everything we lived for these past three years is over, done with. And it didn't even go out in a blaze of glory. It went out with a loud cry of anguish from the cross. What a horrible way to end the season. What's going to happen to us now? Now that everything we pinned our hopes to is dead. So they were cowering. They were wondering. They were afraid. 
We might not know exactly what the disciples were feeling, but we do understand their fear. We know what it's like to be afraid. Afraid of not being in control. Afraid of losing control. Afraid of having everything you've come to know knocked right out from underneath you. Afraid of working hard to get everything in order and then have everything change. Afraid of everything that's going on today in the economy, the election, the environment, the state, your job, or your lack of one. You know the fear that comes right up and bites you when you hear the words, you've got cancer. Your parents are getting a divorce. I want a divorce. Your application's been rejected. Your loved one's not going to pull through. You know the fear that grips your heart when nothing's for sure anymore. When you don't know what to do. You don't know which way to turn in life. When things have gone from black and white to many shades of gray. We've all been there. Everything seems to be clicking along just fine, and then something happens that jerks your chain, shakes you up, and forces you to ask some hard and painful questions. You know what it's like when life confronts you with its terribly distressing facts. And then come the questions, question after question, faster than it can be answered. How can God let this happen in my life? And it doesn't really matter, at the time anyway, that as a Christian we have the promise that all things really will work out together for good for those who love God and keep His commandments. At that point, you just plain can't see how anything good can come out of it. How can God let so-and-so die? How can God let this kind of thing happen to me, to my friends, to my relatives? It's not fair. That human fear, that common doubt is what Satan will use to get at you. In fact, Satan will use whatever it takes to get you. He'll use success, money, poverty, health, sickness, our friends, anything good, evil, desires, pride, your brilliant logic, humility, whatever. And Satan's not beyond using our doubts and fears to drive a wedge between us and our Lord and His Word. You know that. You know that by experience. Then Jesus appears in their midst and says, Peace to you. Jesus comes to the disciples, failures, and says, to them, peace to you. Peace to you means I forgive you. Think of a time when you knew that because of what you'd done or left undone, you really should have been reamed up one side and down the other, let go from your job, kicked out of the family and grounded for life except that your parents wouldn't want you around that long. And that's just for starters. Why, for me, that was just yesterday. 
and probably it was yesterday for you too. Think of a time like that and then think of what it's like to instead of being shrieked at, the person you let down who knows exactly what you did forgives you. They don't nail you and scream and holler, but rather into your brokenness, they say, peace to you. That's the state the disciples found themselves in. Jesus, who knew exactly how low the disciples had sunk, the disciples who deserved nothing less than to be slammed up against the wall for good, hear the same Jesus they'd so deserted saying, Peace to you. Jesus gives them peace in the midst of their doubt and fear. It sounded unreal. No one does that kind of thing. The God they'd let down saying, peace to you? They'd betrayed him. It sounded as unreal as the words of the women who'd said they'd seen Jesus alive. So unbelievable, they thought. They thought they were seeing some sort of spirit. Perhaps, perhaps Satan was playing a trick on them. Instead of peace, they thought that some sort of ghost had appeared to play games in their heads. But Jesus wasn't satisfied with their unbelief. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? He couldn't let their unbelief stand in the face of the certainty of his resurrection. And so what's he do? He shows them his hands and his side, vivid reminders of his suffering and death. His work was done, and he had the scars to prove it. Then Jesus says something strange. He asks them if they have something to eat. And they had some fish and gave him the fish, and Jesus ate it. Jesus isn't some sort of ghost. He's not a hologram or a pepper's ghost image brought to them by some sort of ancient glass magic. He's real. He was dead. And now he's alive. And the deity and the humanity of Jesus aren't separable either. You can't have the humanity of Jesus somehow locked up in heaven and the deity of Jesus ghosting his way around earth. Wherever Jesus is, he's God and man. In heaven and on earth, wherever you go, even to his own banquet table, he asks them for food. Have you ever intentionally gone to breakfast with your mortal enemy? Or dinner with a foe? Of course not. With friends, yes but not your enemies. Peace to you, Jesus says to them. And then he says, let's eat. Jesus shows them his true nature and the true nature of the Father. Jesus shows them that the Father is at peace with them, willing to eat with them. And then Jesus gets to the point He tells the disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus' life is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Not just a few scattered verses here and there, but the whole thing. The entirety of the scriptures are about Christ and his work on the cross. All theology is about Christ. Christ is at the center of the Old Testament. Christ is the center of the New Testament. Jesus is at the heart of who we are as a congregation. Jesus is at the heart of who you are as a baptized Christian. There are so many who would like the church to be about something else. But for us, it's all about Jesus and his work on the cross. But the disciples couldn't see that. So, what did he do for them? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day be raised from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. What did he do for them? He opened their minds. Understanding the scriptures doesn't just happen. We're open-minded to so many things, some good things and many bad things. But this open-mindedness, we don't have on our own. Jesus has to give this. It's a gift that comes from outside of yourself. The disciples had been with Jesus for three years. They'd sat at his feet. They'd walked with him. They had argued and discussed and shook their heads. They'd seen his death. And now they had seen the risen Lord himself standing right there in front of them. And still they didn't get it. They had all the proof in the world standing right there, but still Jesus had to open their minds to understand what it was all about. So there has to be the apologetics, the logical proofs, the always being ready for a defense for the faith that lies within us. That has to be there. And there has to be Jesus opening our minds. Those two things can't be in competition with each other. They go hand in hand. So Jesus gives them and us the core of his message. The divine must, if you will. Jesus must suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It wasn't as if this was one option among many. Jesus' death and resurrection was the only way God could save the world. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is it. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. That's the message of the Christian church. That's the message that got Jesus killed. That's the message that turned apostles into martyrs. And that's the message He calls us to carry. Jesus must suffer and die and rise again. There was no other way. And trusting that his death did it for you is the only way, then and today. It's such an important message that Jesus doesn't just hope 
that the message will get out somehow. No, he commissions his disciples. He says, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. And after you are clothed with power from on high, I will send you out into the whole world to echo the news that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because the Jews needed to hear it first. The people of God needed to hear the message of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins before anyone else. Jerusalem needed to hear it first. Not because they were bigger sinners than, any, than everybody else. Not because they were the ones yelling, crucify him, and so they needed forgiveness more than anyone else. No. The people of God needed to hear the message of God before anyone else. The Jews were the people of God. And what was true then is true today. The gospel is for the people of God too. The gospel is for Christians as well. It's not as if I know the gospel... And now it's all about a life of self-improvement. Our constant failures and our sin-stained hearts need the gospel as much now as when we first came to faith. We don't come to church to, fu to, to fulfill an obligation to, to God as if God is keeping some sort of divine scorecard on how many times we've come. He's released us from the law. We're free, totally free in Christ. So why come to church if we're absolutely free and if we don't come, His steadfast love toward us won't change a wink. We come to hear Jesus speak into the brokenness of our lives, into our failures, into our not wanting to hear him and his goodwill for us, we come to hear Jesus speak into our ears, peace to you. Knowing how much we have let him down and failed him, knowing how much we've hurt those around us whom he has put there to care for us, knowing how much our selfishness causes hurt in the lives of others, and if in the lives of others, then even in God himself, into our wretched, broken, fearful hearts, we come to hear him say, still, nevertheless, screw up though you are, peace to you. We come not because God will change toward us if we don't, but because we'll change. His word will change us, one way or the other. We come so that we can learn from him with hearts he's opened. Learn not from the world, but from the father, how to be a compassionate and caring father and mother to our children. How to be loving and passionate husbands to our wives and wives to our husbands. How to be sons, how to be daughters, how to be employers and workers to those around us. We come because there's no other place we'll always hear those good-to-hear words, peace to you.
Of course, if you don't make mistakes, if you haven't screwed up, if you have no regrets, if you have nothing to repent of and wouldn't if you did, then none of this will really mean that much to you. But when you're called on the carpet and the truth about you comes out and condemns you and you're a broken, flickering wick about to go out, you need to hear more than anything else the words peace to you. This is where you'll hear those words. And this time, this time, instead of him asking you if you have anything to eat, he invites you to his table to feast with him in fellowship forever on the finest of meats and the best of wines, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Couldn't think of a better note to end the week on. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.